Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So is there uh, anyone here for the first or second time? Vijay, welcome. Yes? Yeah, Jeff. Jeff? Michael? Michael? So now we'll do our group introduction by name. My name is Doug. And Vijay, go around. Say your name again. <laughs> My name is Kevin. John. My name is Andre. Paul. Jeff. Chris. Patrick. Luke. Peter. George. Gary. Joe. Peter. Harley. Mark. Peter. My name is Ray Dyer. Teach. Leor. Eric. David. Richard. Richard. Scott. Michael. Larry Wick. Anthony. Abdul. Jim. My name's Jerry Jones. Peter. I am Carl. Howard. Robert. Don. Daniel. David. Peter. My name's Keeney. My name is Snake. Michael. Bill. Marvin. Okay, our uh, speaker today is Arena Weissman, and uh, Arena started studying insight meditation in 1979 and has taught since 1988. She's co-authored A Beginner's Guide to Insight Meditation, and she's founded an insight meditation center in East Hampton, Massachusetts, and she's taught in many parts of the world. Among them, the Big Insight Meditation Center in Barry, Massachusetts, which is the East Coast counterpart to our Spirit Rock here up in Marin County. And uh, at Spirit Rock, she pioneered with Eric, the teacher Eric Kolbig, a former member of our group, um, retreats for our community. And she now considers herself uh, among the more radical of Buddhist teachers in terms of incorporating political activism into her Buddhist practice and uh, teaching an important point with the upcoming election. Arena? Thank you. Thanks. Well, hi. What a pleasure to be here and um, to connect with you all and, and your community. And um, I want to start just by honoring um, each of you here turning up. Thank you. Um, because when I reflect back over the different movements that I've been part of, both growing up in South Africa and having parents who were um, very active in the anti-apartheid movement, and then in um, the women's liberation movement also being a part of the student and Marxist movement at university and then um, our queer movement, queer describing trans and inters and bi and all of us. Um, um, you know, if I was to look at the conditions that brought about so many of the changes that have manifested in our lives, coming together you know, making that effort to come together is probably the grounds for much of that to happen. If we hadn't come together, it wouldn't have happened. None of those movements would have happened. And so even if the experience of coming together is, oh God, that was such a waste of time, you know, that turning up 
over time, it feels like is the precondition for any and all change. And so I really wanted to honor you on such a beautiful Sunday when there's so much going on um, in turning up. Thank you. So thanks for that. Um, and, um, and really, in a way, this topic feels like it goes to um, the heart of all liberation movements, actually, and that is redefining the cultural definitions and social definitions of who we are, <coughs> and really looking at um, who am I? Who, who is this human being that I call me? And what does it mean that this me is, is situated in queer expression? That I am a universal expression of life and that expression happens in a unique form and one of those unique forms is to be queer. And um, so what is, you know, what does that mean? And In all the different political activism I've done and um, over my li over my lifetime, one of the reasons I came to Buddhism and one of the reasons I've stayed here in Buddhism is because um, it names so beautifully the heart um, of really life. Why am I alive? What what does it mean for me to be alive? And, and that naming is awakening. I believe that we are all alive to awaken. That is, awakening is about really that the letting go of the cultural and social definitions and the individual def definitions we've taken on that have restricted and constricted our hearts and minds. That awakening is really a description of this profound coming home to ourselves where we feel um, a deep ease of who we are and how we are. And that, that ease is, is um, totally free of all prescriptions and, and conscriptions and descriptions. It, it, is, it is that longing to find um, my true home, you know, that, that place where I, that the opposite of that place where I feel driven, you know, that feeling of just being driven, that momentum, and it's either moved in a kind of anxiety or the opposite of it is a kind of depression and hopelessness. Awakening is, is the, uh, a sense of deep relatedness that, that is actually underneath those movements. And probably each one of us here has touched some place that feels more universal, whether we were a kid, whether it's in nature, whether it's in doing music or even in touch um, and sexual expression, some place where we have, we feel like we've moved out of living on the realm of concept and dropped down into some other place that feels deeply related without a sense of duality or um, opposition or um, um, tension or anxiety, this place where we feel, oh my God, I feel at home in the universe. But that home isn't about a building and it isn't even about a word. It's a lived experience of finding that place. And that's what the Dharma teaches in all the lineages. That's what Buddha teaches, is that that sense of being at home in myself, not in an abstract way, not like home is this, you, this that everyone looks the same, but home as me queer in my own queer expression. That type of home. 
the Dharma teachers. And, and that, that is um, the, uh, it feels like the longing, really, that every human being has. And that longing gets distorted by the conditioned mind, both, both the conditioned mind that the Buddha says that we're born with and also the conditioned mind that is expressed in cultures, in most cultures actually, which, um, which is based on inadequacy and deficiency. So for example, um, um, all the advertising that we experience is is a reflection <coughs> that says we are inadequate in some way and we need to do something about it. We need to do something about it. The um, Buddhist description of that is ignorance. He said every mind until it is awakened lives in ignorance. And that ignorance is an expression of insufficiency and inadequacy. That's what ignorance is. And so any place inside of us that believes that, not even consciously, but unconsciously, then acts out of that inadequacy and insufficiency in particular ways. And those particular ways the Buddha describes as suffering that whatever we do out of that energy brings <coughs> suffering, by definition, because it's based on a delusion, it's based on a lie. So, for example, just to take something that we're all experiencing right now in terms of the war and fundamentalism, here are people, uh, both uh, on um, the, um, um, from my perspective, at least, um, um, who are suicide bombers, whether they're in the United States Army or whether they're part of a, um, a, a different army, um, whether it's Al-Qaeda or Shiites. Or, um, the fundamentalism says that, um, the, that in order to serve God, yeah, we need to get rid of a certain um, population. You know, and by killing, we're serving God. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? That particular perspective is that it is based on the idea that you here and now are not good enough, and so you have to do this thing to make yourself good, you know. And that is the that is really the basic description of addiction, given an ideological framework. And so much of our own addictive behavior, and that's why I'm starting off this talk, whatever expression it is, but particularly sexual, is based on this misunderstanding that we are in some way inadequate and insufficient or not good enough, in, in, in some kind of core way. And that in order to fill this inadequacy or insufficiency, there is a dynamic. And it's not like we're choosing it. I just want to acknowledge it's not, it is a dynamic that is happening there already, according to the Dharma. And what's important about meditating and cultivating awareness is to see it, because unless we see it, it can't be transformed. So each human being is born with this dynamic, because each human being, until they're awakened, is born with a certain amount of ignorance, according to the Buddhist teaching. Particular cultures and ideological frameworks will support this and strengthen it. All their particular ways of living, if we undertake the Dharma training, well, that will challenge it. What's great about saying this is just by naming it and saying, okay, is it true? Do I agree with what you're saying? And I'm really interested in having a dialogue with you to see if this is your experience. Is it true? Is there some part of my being that is habitual and automatic that if I really look at that behavior, I see underneath it a confusion 
you know, a lack of clarity. And that in that confusion associated with it is an inadequacy, an insufficiency, and out of that a clinging, a movement towards clinging and wanting because that insufficiency is so painful. And so the mind moves, and it's not personal. Each one of us has it. It's universal across straight, gay, American, South African. I mean, we see it all around the world, this dynamic, this dynamic that moves in every single mind to try to hold onto something, and that something is pleasure, as a way to fill that inadequacy and insufficiency on, on a very basic level. And so we have, you know, this momentum inside of us moving towards what? Moving towards pleasure as a way to fill this energy and, uh, and moving um, away from the, uh, this very deeply unpleasant experience. That, that movement, the Buddha says, will always bring suffering. Out of that insufficiency, a movement towards pleasure will always bring suffering because it is not situated in our humanity. It is not situated in our love, and it isn't situated in that inner connection of, of being rooted in the universality of life that is connected to what is beautiful about life. Here is the place where it feels like the patriarchal lineage of Buddhism doesn't make clear, at least for me, the difference between sensuality and pleasure as an exquisite reflection of life and the beauty of myself as queer, and when it actually brings suffering and is part of this habitual expression that brings ultimately alienation. And that is that the Buddha doesn't make clear this distinction between where is our central expression coming from? Is it coming from this movement of delusion and confusion? Because if it is, it might bring us the kind of physical relief and even physical pleasure, but it actually isn't in the service of coming home which is where the real longing is and where really all of our life can come into service for? Or is it this habitual nature that actually reinforces that sense of inadequacy? That's the question that, that I think a radical interpretation of the Dharma is asking us. And not just around our sexuality and sensuality, but really all of our life. Is this in service of, of my heart opening? Is this in service of me coming more deeply in connection to my humanity and to yours? To what's beautiful about you being queer and about me being queer? Sitting in front of this Buddha is, is, is this remi reminder to us in saying, if you've touched that place of coming home inside of yourself, you know, even when you get kind of lost again, you know where your compass is pointing. And once you've touched it, you know that there is actually nothing more important than orienting your life to touch it. And so what the statue is saying is, don't, what, um, let me see if I can, why, why eat at Dunkin' Donuts when you can eat at Just Desserts? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's so much better, you know. <laughs> it is, it's so much better, you know, and it's like because you don't know it, because you don't know it, so, you know, so for example, just putting it on a different level, again, growing up in South Africa, that, um, I don't know, have any of you been in, were any of you in South Africa during the apartheid, yeah, I mean, it, 
the um, but you here in America and, and there was the um, there continues to be this incredible enslavement but also just being queer and coming out I mean I don't know if you've been in a situation you know where um, you have where you have found yourself um, acting out of shame for being queer you know in a place where maybe you could have come out and you didn't come out there is something sort of close to that of where we've lost connection to what is beautiful about ourselves and so we buy into a behavior that is about the smallness of ourself. Buddhism is saying don't buy into that behavior. And so so then we get to so then we get to look at well, what is it? How do I start to make that distinction between aligning my life and acting out of that longing for deep connection and intimacy with myself, with others and with life and that other behavior that is really when it's more extreme is described as addictive because it comes out of believing that I'm inadequate in some way and that there is nothing better than meeting that inadequacy through the use of pleasure. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So so um so then there is so then what are what are the differences between what are the differences between both kinds of behavior? Let me ask you. What are the differences between honoring that deep calling and moving out of inadequacy? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of temporal or ephemeral. You know, this this temporary sense of well-being that might mm-hmm. be uh, allowed by a more superficial right. pleasure, right. and then you can kind of sustain your delusion that everything is good, right. Right. but it's right. uh, it's a little shallow yes. and fleeting. Yeah. Thank you. And dependent right. on getting another one. Right. Exactly. 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 So thank you. So that's that's so beautiful. And here's you know here's the rub, um, which is that that sense of intimacy has to acknowledge all of our experiences. That when we talk about intimacy and coming home, it can't be exclusive. Because as soon as it's exclusive, it becomes repressive. That is that we repress the experiences we don't like and we go for the experiences we do like, which is turning away from pain, because that's unpleasant, and moving towards what's pleasurable. What? So the first, the, one of the first characteristics of habitual behavior is that it turns away from our sorrow and grief. And it moves only towards what looks nice and what is pleasant. You certainly can. (laughs) Well, the the, the temporal ephemeral is always outside of ourselves. Yes. It always has to be sought externally. Exactly, exactly. So you always have to go out and get it. Exactly. And getting it, that sense of getting it, is all about duality. It's all about me here moving out, just as you're describing, to get something to meet that need. Yeah. And we all do it. I, I, we all do it. So, you know, we are all doing it. We are all doing it. And not just in this room. We are all doing it. You know, what's so beautiful is having a discussion just to investigate, to see for ourselves. Can I see that? Can I see that in my life? The, the place where I don't want to hear or see all of your humanity because I don't actually, I'm not that interested <coughs> in seeing all of mine. I just, you know, really want to get away from it. I mean, I see that. I've seen that, you know. In fact, I remember that um, early on in my life, I grew up in, uh, with um, three sisters and we were very competitive. And there was this one point where 
I was fighting for her over this really gorgeous dress that she'd bought and I wanted to wear it to this party. And even though it was her dress, I was trying to manipulate her into giving it to me so I could wear it. And um, in that moment of wanting, I actually didn't care if I hurt her. You know, and it and I've noticed ever you know over the years particular moments, and I, there was another one when I was in um, a relationship in the eighties, and we were driving here to the city, um, and uh, we were having a fight. I can't remember what it was, and we we were like, oh, we have to get out of the car. We were in a VW, and we got out. And I remember being cramped. You know, we got out, and she said something, and I had the same movement of getting my arm up to hit her because I wanted to hurt her. And those were expressions, you know, of, of a mind and a heart that couldn't open to the pain of what was happening and moved out in an expression of either wanting to grasp, hold onto the dress, or hurt to push away. And what these teachings are saying is that longing that we want to come home to is actually a longing that expresses itself in including everything. It means including all of ourselves and all of another human being. And that's one of the characteristics that, that um, tells us whether we're on the right path or not, is am I being inclusive? Am I really opening and allowing someone to see all of myself? And am I really um, seeing all of someone else? And um, a couple of us were in uh, a one, uh, one day sitting yesterday at the Hartford Street Zen Center, and um, we, we, were t we were talking about what it means to hold both the joys and sorrows of our life and how humbling it is, how totally humbling it is to really acknowledge all of who we are and to say, this is who I am. The quality of coming home is a mind that allows all of ourselves to be held in our presence and our loving kindness. That allowing is really the passageway home. In that allowing, we find ourselves opening to each human being that allows them to be all of who they are. In that kind of relatedness comes a touch and a sensuality and a sexuality that actually continues to help us and support us to know more about all of who we are and to come home to ourselves. And that is the sensuality and sexuality that becomes an expression of our divine selves and also takes us to our divinity as against the kind of sexuality that ignores. So, for example, I lived in a commune in... Um, and I, I, um, this was kind of unique, because uh, I don't know if there wasn't a whole a lot of it ha um, going on then, but for women anyway, but it was in the 80s. It was called Oregon Women's Land Trust. It was a land just for women, and we were exploring... Um, all kinds of forms, and that in that era in the um, 80s, it, um, what, when it was yeah, it was in the early 80s. It was like monogamy was patriarchal and was totally uncool. <laughs> 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 and so, and so we were, you know, we were having sex with, we were having sex with everyone, and um, it was so, it was so, it was so interesting to. Um, just to see in that, you know, in that experimental um, um, milieu how sometimes sex in that environment just was like, it, it, you know, it sort of was like I really wanted to get away from the person right afterwards 
you know, kind of did not feel that good. I mean, the actual touching was okay, but right afterwards it was like I could just feel myself turning away from some woman and then other women where it would be like touching and you would be like, not that you knew you weren't going to be in a relationship with this person because that wasn't what was happening, but you really did feel like you touched something beautiful. So in what I'm talking, it's not about having this commitment that, you know, because there's some people like Thich Nhat Hanh who say sex is okay, but it has to be in a long-term committed relationship. And I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying... How are we coming into it? And is it really serving us and that deep longing we have to come home to ourselves in our life? Whatever the form that that sexual expression is taking. And it's not about judging and shaming ourselves. And so, because I really do want time for dialogue, but I want to say this because it feels so important, that we are operating primarily in a Judeo-Christian culture and that the kind of shame and guilt that we have unconsciously imbibed because we're living in that culture means that when we have sex often and it, it doesn't feel beautiful in that, in that more connected, open-hearted way, we shame ourselves and judge ourselves. And in this tradition, there is never, ever a reason for, for judgment. It doesn't matter what we do. There's never, ever a good reason to shame and judge ourselves. This is not about shaming and judging ourselves. This is saying, what is your true longing? And is, and my true longing, and is my sexual behavior supporting that? And if it isn't, what what is the characteristics of that? And can I become more conscious of it so that I'm in service of my heart's longing? So there isn't a prescription so much as an investigation to see what is really serving me. Just, just, just to become honest with ourselves. You know? We're all in it. We are all doing, doing, going and getting, we're all doing that type of um, relationship. But not that. And just to name it, oh, yeah, I can see this actually doesn't feel as good as when I, I turn to a different relationship, a different type of cultivation. So... One, one more thought, thing to end, which is that different type of cultivation it actually requires a tremendous amount of effort. You know, like anything that we want to honor that is a beautiful expression, whether it's as an artist or in our work or in sports or in dancing or anything, um, it requires an incredible cultivation. Uh, having practiced since 1979, and so how many years is that? I don't know, whatever, a long time. I wish I could say, you know, well, you know, I've done these, you know, intensive three-month retreats. I've just spent two years in monasteries. You know, that, you know, it's really easy, and here's the key. I wish I could say that. And... I haven't found that to be true. It hasn't been easy, actually. I, I have to say that, you know, the practice of being present and turning towards myself so that I am increasingly honest and open with all of who I am has been an arduous practice. And what I also have found is that through that, the places that get that are deeply touched are so transformative that actually I find myself not being able to act dangerously anymore because something gets changed <coughs> where, we, where, the, where the heart and the mind it more naturally flows towards love and respect. It, with, 
that that is the beautiful expression. So, for example, one of my favorite stories is Kalu Rinpoche going to an aquarium in Boston and um, that he can't read English, so there was a big sign, please do not tap on the glass. And he would go to each um, tank, that's not the right word, but whatever it is, and um, tap on it, <laughs> like this. And uh, so the fishes and the different creatures would be attracted to the tapping and come towards the glass. And there would be this moment, and then he would go into the next glass and tap. And finally his students said, you know, Rinpoche, what are you doing? And he said, I'm tapping them to get their attention so that I can bless them. That life, which I think um, on Song Suki in Burma, the Dalai Lama and other beings really express for us, that capacity, because we feel so touched with the blessing of life, and that means all of it, we are moved to bless each other life through touch in whatever way that um, is, we're moved to in our life. That kind of blessing comes from this incredible effort to be present and to turn and open to all of who I am and then automatically all of who you are. That presence is the, is the gift that each one of us has that we can awaken. So um, let me end there and then open it up for um, dialogue. Yeah. Could you say your name again? Peter. Yeah, Peter. Uh, thank you so much. That's really wonderful talk. Um, I wanted to ask you um, to talk a little bit more about dealing with certain kinds of narcissism. Um, I was watching the vice presidential debates and uh, looking at Sarah Palin, and uh, I really had the sense that I was looking uh, sort of at Cali, you know, with a necklace of skulls or Shiva. There was this, um, uh, I don't like Sarah Pell, I guess. But there was this real sense that she was offering herself in the way that Marilyn Monroe would have offered herself. You know, yeah. Look at me, I'm yeah, hot, right. I'm sexy, right. wouldn't you like right. to have sex with me? Right. Wouldn't you like yeah. me to be your president? Yeah. We right. know, look how, yeah. look how I wear my lipstick, look how yeah, I wear right. my glasses, look how I wear my hair and a little bun like a Randy librarian, you know? It's... <laughs> <laughs> you are good. One <laughs> <laughs> picks up these things as a queer man. <laughs> I, um, I felt very uh, uh, unhappy, very frightened, really, by the sense that the political system has moved towards a kind of consumerism, so that this person is presenting herself not as, uh, in terms of her competence or her intelligence or her skills, which she obviously must have to become governor of Alaska, but as a, as a commodity. You know, she's saying, well, I'm just like all the salespeople you see on TV offering you cars and refrigerators and vacations and, you know, whatever else, and Rolexes, you know. I'm, I'm a hot babe and, you know, you want to identify with me. Uh, no, so I ask you this because I think some of the issues you were bringing up are, are you seem to have a framework for looking at them. Um, the whole movement in politics, it seems to me, in the last <coughs> 10 or 20 years has really been towards a much more narcissistic kind of approach to um, expressing the will of the people. We're encouraged more and more to behave like consumers, to identify with our you know, personal needs and desires. And so she was there to say, I'm just like you. you know, I'm like your, your next door neighbor's wife, or I'm like your, your mother or your girlfriend or whatever. Vote for me because of that, because you identify. And uh, it seems to me that um, the old system, which has sort of fallen apart where people voted in terms of some kind of transcendent idea, um, you know, we, we know from the Vietnam period and other things that happened that that sense of not being at home with yourself was dangerous and people were led to support things. Uh, certainly anybody who studied patriarchy, many things that were really life-denying. Um, but the narcissism that has replaced it then leads to someone like Sarah Palin. And so 
how does one negotiate between that sense of something beyond the self, beyond the ego, beyond desire, and the kind of pitfalls of uh, acting politically in terms of the leader expressing your desire or reinforcing your uh, your ego needs. You know? Yeah, thank you. That's really a beautiful question. And um, You know, I, I mean, it's so, it feels like it's so painful in a way and why I, I started talk, uh, our sharing talking about um, coming home is that it's, um, it's so profoundly painful when we don't have a culture that um, supports um, our real, our humanity. What is beautiful about our lives, and what I, what I notice for myself, because I'm in a big transition at the moment, and I'm trying to decide whether to continue to be the guiding teacher of, of um, the center I founded. Is in thinking about it, I, I notice this sort of constriction around being a teacher, and notice the identification. That, um, that comes up of feeling that I need to be a certain way in order to justify sharing the Dharma, that I, that I need to behave a certain way. And that, that, is the, that is similar to the narcissism you're talking about. And it's the places where either through religion, we, or through politics, or through being queer, actually, or through being men or women, um, uh, or through our, uh, whether we, you know, as Jews or the different ways, we have taken on these ideas of how we think we should be. To, to, and that that becomes the justification of who we are. And fundamentalism is that identification with a particular set of beliefs. And if we are doing the same thing, it's just that our beliefs are different. I, I am doing the same thing in relationship to how I think I should be as a Buddhist teacher. And one is it really, it's excruciating, really. And it is incredibly scary not to believe it. It is incredibly scary to let go of those thoughts and to say, just who I am. Maybe that's good enough, you know. Maybe I don't look like Jack Cornfield or Sharon Salzberg or, um, or, or, you know, Kuan Yin, you know. <laughs> it is. It is really scary. I notice how much fear I have in. In, in not believing that, and every time I notice that that sense of <coughs> I have to be a certain way, and I allow it, I allow that constriction, and I open to the feeling of it. Underneath it is this grief, you know, is this unacknowledged grief. So what I see in Sarah Palin and the growing fundamentalism and fascism, actually, that's happening in the world is a profound grief, a profound unacknowledged grief, because we are so far away from her, and that we are spiraling, you know, and that's why I so acknowledge our coming together in community, because that's the first step in exploring it together, because really, I mean, there are some people who do it alone, who go into a cave for 20 years and do it alone, but for the most part, I feel like we can only do it in community to say, I'm scared. You know, I'm scared both in my own identifications and I'm scared in the identifications that's happening in the world. And so can I have the courage because I'm not alone and I actually need you because if you weren't here, I wouldn't be here to begin to look at that so that I can uh, 
be honest about my grief and fear with you and hold yours as well. And in that, can we change how we're relating? So I'm not just presenting, you know, the um, distorted expression of my being, but I'm really offering myself. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much for your talk. What, Irina, what, what does it look like for you when um, you've come home? Um, it's hard to give it words. You don't have anything here because you know traditionally you're not really even supposed to talk about it. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, so, well, here's a traditional poem. The 10,000 conditions of the world have dropped off. All that is left is this true heart mind invoking Buddha's name. With a single invocation, I transcend the bitterness of this world. Greed, anger, ignorance and desire are completely uprooted. In complete and naked purity, I dwell in the tower of radiant light, having realized the Dharmakaya, I am free from the wheel of suffering. Once I fulfill my vow to attain the perfect purity of the land of bliss, I will return to this world of suffering to liberate sentient beings. This was a Chinese um, um, nun in 1854. Um, so maybe just to say that in those moments there's no sense of split or separation or duality of I'm here and you're there. But there is a sense of wholeness and unity <coughs> in whatever's happening. So it's not that there isn't fear, but that there isn't a sense of I'm here and the fear is here, but that this, that um, presence, that, that mindfulness, uh, um, awareness um, is permeates everything and holds everything. So that, now, sometimes that's, so there's a no, there's sense of there's no like walls or like here's the universe and then it stops, but it's, it's everywhere. And then sometimes it's just a touch where the mind drops into that space just for a minute and then comes out again, you know, so that's a more usual experience. What's beautiful about the dropping in in meditation practice is that it's a kind of like a constant reminder. Oh yeah, you know. Oh yeah, this is the wellspring, and it it sort of magnetizes the needle on the compass again. Oh yeah, yeah, right. This is you know this is where I'm going. You know? So that the places when I I notice that I'm in aversion or judgment, you know, which is arising, you know, definitely arise. It, it, it's, it's dropping into those places. It makes it, cl it, it. One is less seduced into believing them. One is less seduced into believing those the 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 uh, narcissism, the judgment, the energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that question. Yeah. Hi. Um. What do you do with the feelings of fear and sadness and deficiency um, when you're experiencing it so you don't go ahead and do habitual behaviors to kind of numb the feelings? Is there something to do with the feelings? What, what do you do? to be 
gives you to uh, create another perspective so that the feelings don't seem so right. sharp. Right. Right. Um, right. Right. So for me, yeah. it, can, it can be busier to do something to distract yeah. myself from yeah. the feelings. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, You speak, so you're speaking to someone, you know, I can only speak from my own experience and it might, and I want to acknowledge that there are other, you know, there are probably a lot of responses and some of you all could give a, a, a lot of responses, um, but because I'm here. Um, honestly, I could not be where I am without having done intensive retreats. You know, and speak, and so a similar, um, an, uh, uh, not what's it? Uh, example, similar example, is um, you know, if I want to, um, if I want to develop strength in my body, then I'll train, whatever training that involves, and I w- wouldn't be able to pick up something heavy unless I trained. The same with working with fear, that unless the quality of mindfulness and awareness is strong, when a heavy weight comes up in the sense of fear or very strong feelings of compulsion or judgment, unless there's the counter strength to hold that, then we're moved in the ways that you described. And it's not, again, it's not about being a bad person or being a failure. (coughs) It's just, it's really scientific. It's saying that awareness and mindfulness need to be strong to hold the strength of those energies. And that if it was easy, we would all be enlightened already. You know, and we're not because that presence and awareness demands training. I wish I could say something different, honestly, but I can't. It's taken a lot of intensive meditation retreats to develop, as well as an ongoing practice where I meditate every day, to develop that presence to hold what's coming up. And so really, you know, from my perspective, I would say, hey, come to the queer retreats. You know, come on retreat because I know of no other way of, of jump-starting and strengthening the muscle of awareness and mindfulness than being on retreat. And, you know, any retreat, you know, it doesn't have to be in my tradition. It could be in any tradition. But to take time away where that is the focus, the single focus is to develop mindfulness and awareness. Because the stronger mindfulness and awareness are, the more it holds the sorrow and the judgment and the insufficiency and inadequacy. And in that holding, it's healed. It, the, the, the engine that drives those energies dies, you know, and, and it becomes a whimper, you know, and then just it is without any fire left. And that's when presence and awareness permeates the mind and the heart. <coughs> I, I know of no other way. The only other way is if you happen to have good karma and you suddenly awaken like Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> <laughs> he suddenly awakened. Um, you know, we just have a few minutes, and I would love to do this exercise that... Um, just feels um, uh, uh, very much part of what we're talking about. So I'd like to ask you to turn to the person that you're sitting to and just to look at this person as in, kind of in the way that we've been... Sp- so just find a partner and turn to them, just for the last few minutes. Everyone find a partner. And um, put up your hand if you don't have a partner. There's one person, there's, oh, there you go, without a partner. And um, so everyone has a partner. Come, come and, um, I've forgotten your name, I'm sorry. Uh, Joe, come and sit here. So we partner. I'll be a, I'll be a little distracted, but. <clears throat> I, 
Uh, no. Oh, oh, oh. What, yeah. What was your name? Sorry. Dan. Dan. Can, come here and sit next to me so you have a partner. I'll be a distracted partner. And um, take a moment and allow your eyes to close and just connect with your body again. And then allow your eyes to open and to see this being in front of you. This, um, and just to look at this person in front of you. So open your eyes and look at this person in front of you and see their great sorrow that they, you know that they've lived with, the moments where their heart is broken. And offer your presence in sharing that. I offer my presence to hold your grief, the places where your heart's been broken, the places of great challenge that you have faced, of your fears, the moments of anguish and anger, the moments where we have felt belittled and shamed, I offer my presence to hold this with you. I see these energies that you have carried in your face and I offer my heart's presence to hold them so that you don't feel alone. And then allow your eyes to close for a minute. Acknowledging how what's present for you. And then allow your eyes to open again and to see this person in front of you and now acknowledging their great strengths, their courage. They're alive, that takes so much courage and sharing your presence for their courage for the beauty of their being, this human being in front of you and how beautiful they are, for their love, their moments of generosity that might have gone unacknowledged until now, sharing our presence and acknowledging their generosity, their compassion, their great empathy, their kindness that might also not have been acknowledged and we give our presence to acknowledge it and their wisdom the wisdom that brought them here today acknowledging that I offer my presence in seeing you and then allowing your eyes to close. And just for this moment, extending this presence to our whole community, our queer families all over the world, I offer my presence in the same way to all that is heartbroken and all that is beautiful that might not have been acknowledged, but in this moment I acknowledge it. And then out into the whole world. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you everyone. Arena would like a run to the East Bay, I think, and she also would like to check out the Castro Street Fair. <laughs> she has never seen. So if uh, anybody could um, help her with those things, talk to her. <laughs> post announcement. Oh, not post. Okay.
Um, I'm the host. Uh, there's some treats. Um, they're, um, they're Japanese treats, so they don't have any melanin in them. <laughs> <laughs> and there's fruit, and there's tea, so please help yourself. And if you do drink tea, could you please rinse out your cup? There's also a Donna bowl, and your generosity will be much appreciated. The suggested donation or gift is between five $8. If you give less, give more, there's no judgment. And I think that's it. Carl? Yeah. Um, well, for those of us who want to uh, give the shot and stay with our minds for five days and do some retreat practice, as Arena suggested, in fact, to be with Arena for five, five nights in less than two weeks, um, two weeks from this past Friday. October 17th through the 22nd is going to be our annual LGBT retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center uh, that is going to be led by Arena and, and Marianne, two of the foremost uh, LGBT uh, Buddhist teachers in America. And they're still open space, and it's a sliding scale, and it's, it's an amazing experience to, to sit Mm-hmm. in community for, for that intensive of a yeah. period that would be beautiful. Yeah, come. Really. Yeah. <laughs> and so, October 17th to the 22nd from Friday to Wednesday and uh, spiritrock.org is, uh, is the website. So, Thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah, um, we have a booth today at the, huh. the Davis Fellowship has a booth at the Castro Street Fair and there's been some shiftings around who's staffing the booth, and I volunteered for two shifts, which I'm fine for doing from three to four and from four to five, <coughs> but the way the shifting has now happened, I am alone from uh, four to five, and I would uh, request that folks could come by and uh, join in and uh, offer a little more uh, people that there, and uh, also, um, what do you call it? I just like some companionship rather than just <laughs> in the thing. And I guess it, Taj is going to do three to four with me, right? You? I thought it was two to three. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'll be there. I'll come. Where is the booth? It's on Market Street. I'm not exactly sure where. It's right across from Rolo, on the same side of the street, facing Rolo. Yeah, we're on Market Street, right next door to the Christians. Uh, oh. so, so they're trying to convert us and we're trying to get their phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> they're cute. <laughs> Jerry, I'm your stupid coordinator. Thanks, Serena, for coming today. We appreciate it. And uh, next week, we originally had a Dharma duo, and one of the people can't make it. So Mark Hopheimer, who's one of the Dharma duos, agreed to do either next week or uh, October 26th. So I'm looking for a volunteer who hasn't done it. Actually, I'd like to see everybody who's done Dharma Duo because I think there's quite a bit of, everybody's done Dharma Duo before. And if you're not familiar with it, we're two members of our Sangha come and they tell their story and their experience, how they got here, and whatever they want to talk about. And it's quite powerful because you give service and also you become part of the Dharma because you know we're very busy and we have our half hour social hour, but we really don't get to hear about people's lives and stuff. So. Um, if you're interested and if you could do either one of those, come see me. And it's scary and it's uncomfortable, as Arena was talking about today. I've done it, it was very scary, but sometimes we have to go through that. And you don't have to be perfect. I am not the perfect public speaker, but there is a certain amount of generosity and uh, heartfeltness when you do it. So, thank you. Closing ceremony. <laughs> but it's a nice assignment. <laughs>
we offer all that was wholesome this morning, the moments of presence and kindness, the moments of patience or well-being or connection, the moments of faith perhaps or insight, of generosity, of commitment to what is healing, we offer these the blessings of these energies and these energies to one being or a community of beings or all beings. May all that we are blessed with be shared with others. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.